Welcome to True Crime IRL, true crime in real life. I'm your host, Kelly Barron's Brink. Hey everybody, welcome back to part four of the series that I did with Bob Mata and Darren Wood of The Defense Diaries. This series was all about Anthony Garcia. We did a five-part series, a very deep dive into Anthony Garcia's case, his trial, his background, and if you haven't listened to those episodes yet, be sure to go back to episodes one through three before listening to this. So stay tuned for two more parts. We're almost done and there is a lot more information coming up. But first, a word from our sponsors. And now... Back to the show. So ultimately, they end up picking him up um, while he's like that. So when he got arrested and we got the call, he was in Jackson County, which is in southern Illinois, kind of down the the tip of Illinois down there. Um, And he had told the police that he was heading down to Louisiana. So one of the other things that they had dug up in terms of trying to build their case for you know, the revenge slash ruin career um, whole scenario slash narrative was that he had applied to get licensed down in Louisiana and he was trying to get into residency down there. And they caught wind of, um, they caught wind both of the Creighton issues and they kind of did their, you know, their, they, they kind of. Their what, went, Bob? They, <laughs> they did their due diligence in terms of kind of, not doing what seems to be a pattern with doctors, like what we were talking about yesterday, where they basically are kind of ignoring <laughs> kind of issues that may have existed in the right. past and kind of moving forward. Like they did their due diligence and they were like, yeah, it looks like you have some issues, man. You know, like we, we're, we're not certain that we're going to be able to take you on here. And, yeah. you know, when he ends up getting arrested, he's got all kinds of kind of bizarre shit in the car. He's got a couple of weapons. Um, he's got some stuff in his trunk. And, you know, I think what he had told the police is that he uh, was heading down to Louisiana to kill himself. That's what he had told the police. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then when they did his search on, I think, his computer from home, uh, I think they found some evidence that substantiated that, you know, he had rented a boat. He was going to rent a boat down there and, I don't know, go into one of the bayous and, you know. Uh, kind of end it because he didn't want his folks to have to deal with him like finding him so you know so I mean, would an innocent man do that i don't think it had anything to do with innocence or guilt okay I think he was just not a happy person you mm-hmm. know what i mean mm-hmm. so th- this kind of harkens back to that whole mental health thing that you're saying so now are we picking on the guy because he had mental health issues now we're automatically just assuming he's a murderer because he had mental health issues it's like People do a lot of weird shit, you know, if you were to kind of dig into me, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm certain you'd find some bizarre, you know, picadillos that you'd be like, hmm, that's a little off. You know, I think if, if anybody whose lives are pried into to that extent, you're going to find some shit that's kind of weird. I mean, I, I think is a, is like a, a race, human beings, we're all kind of weird. We all have our own shit. Yeah. That, you know, if anybody were to dig into that depth and you're trying to 
fit in your weirdnesses <laughs> into a certain narrative, mm-hmm. you're probably going to be able to do that to a certain extent. So mm-hmm. he certainly had some some weird things going on, you know, and in terms of the search of his house, like kind of one of their bigger pieces of evidence was that they found this bag in the sink. So when they got into his house on the search, like the day that I was telling you that they arrested him and then they effectuated all these searches at his parents' house in California, his sister's house in California, and then his home in in Indiana, all simultaneously, um, you know, they found this bag of papers in the sink. And they believed that it was like it had been filled with water and had like um, dishwashing detergent like stuck in there. So, you know, they poured in there in the hopes of like kind of dissolving all the paperwork. Mm -hmm. You know, clearly trying to get rid of, you know, whatever strange things that they might have found in there, which I'll kind of get into what they did find in there. But, um, you know, they also, you know, his house was kind of barren. You know, it was like a, you know, he was a single guy, Mm -hmm. you know, so he had he kind of lived like a Spartan life. I heard in some of the other news stories and stuff that it was actually gross, <laughs> like um, that he was living in squalor. No, no, no. 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 It's completely, okay. completely inaccurate. The house wasn't, he wasn't living like a hoarder. He was, you know, it was a perfectly nice little house in the suburb of, I think, of Indianapolis. Um, but, you know, I mean, the guy had a couple of decent rides. He had like, he got, he got pulled over in his Benz. Like a Benz um, crossover, like SUV, and he had that Lamborghini or Ferrari, whatever the hell it was. Guy was not living in squalor. I mean, he he didn't have any furniture really to speak of. He had like a computer desk. Did he have a bed? Yeah, he had a bed, you know, but I think it was more like a mattress on the floor type situation because he was, I think, in his view, he was kind of transient. You know, he did bounce around a lot. Yeah. Like he, when he would get a gig, he wouldn't necessarily stick with that gig for extended periods of time. Like he had never found anything that he was like, oh, I found my niche. You know what I mean? It mm-hmm. was kind of like, oh, you know, with this bag that they end up. So they didn't really find anything else in the house that was damning. You know, like they didn't find any kind of like serious evidence aside from this bag of garbage. And in this bag of garbage, you know, they take it, try to dry out all the paper. And, you know, when we get into discovery, you know, there's a bunch of weird, like, notes and writings in there, you know. And one of them kind of looked like, you know, in the way that the state presented it, it looked like kind of like a kill list, you know, like, you know, these are like buy black gloves, um, you know, like a lot of things that you would think when you're trying to maybe go commit a murder and mm-hmm. they kind of have a laundry list of the things that you need to have in order to kill avoid kit. detection. Yeah. Kill kit. Exactly. Yep. So, um, you know, I didn't necessarily read it that way. Um, I, I definitely thought that what he was writing down was strange because it would be like it would start out with like groceries mm-hmm. and then it would have like, you know, like a length of rope, <laughs> you wow. know, so, yeah. to, you know, like bananas, steak, <laughs> uh, you know, and then there rubber be, gloves. <laughs> yeah, right. There would be something that kind of didn't fit in. Right. Um you know, and there, and there were just some, like, I, I wouldn't call them psychotic ramblings. Mm-hmm. There certainly wasn't anything that was like, you know, I'm going to kill Roger Brumbeck or I'm going to kill Boutra. Like, there was, there was nothing like that. It was just yeah. what seemed to me to be um, just kind of the, you know, the ramblings of a guy who just was not fulfilled or happy in life. You know, mm-hmm. he, was, he was certainly lonely. You know, he, he just wasn't, he wasn't living 
a very happy life. You know, he didn't have a family to speak of in terms of like a wife or kids. Yep. He, you know, wasn't really happy in his career. So, you know, I mean, he was just kind of a miserable guy. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that does not make you a killer. You're right. It doesn't. And, you know, so like kind of those things were kind of how they built the case, you know, and while they have him incarcerated in Omaha. So we so we end up getting hired. Like I said, the family found us on the internet, I think. They just did a random search or oddly enough, I think that they may have like Googled the search term serial killer. And I think that, you know, because my dad was of counsel mm-hmm. with our firm, you know, so and we had his bio listed and we obviously had him as representing serial killer John Wayne Gacy. So I think when that search came up, like we were probably one of the top three sites, you know, so his brother Fernando called us. I, like I said, I, I called him back that night and we ended up taking the drive down there. And then, you know, we weren't licensed in Nebraska. So what lawyers have to do if you're trying a case, like if, it, if it's federal court, if you're, if you're licensed in the trial bar of the federal court of your home state, you pretty much practice anywhere in terms of federal litigation. Like, I mean, you have to out your application to get admitted to that trial bar but it's not like you have to go and take the bar exam because it's you're dealing with federal law as opposed to state law so Mm -hmm. with state law um like if you want to try a case in a state that you're not licensed to practice law in you know they'll typically have rules like in the rules that they had down in omaha is that we had to find local counsel somebody that would come on board with us you know in case that there's discrepancies or differences between the laws of the state Mm-hmm. And obviously, we weren't licensed in that state. We didn't have to take the bar down there. We weren't necessarily familiar with any kind of differences in the law with between like Illinois and Nebraska. So, you know, you go in and they call it uh, Pro Hoc Vitae, some more of that Latin that you love. <laughs> um, you, you get admitted for the limited purposes of handling that one case down there. So we went down there, filled out that application. We're able to find uh, a couple of local counsel that were willing to come on. You know, and, and the issue for those guys is that they knew that they weren't lead counsel. They knew that we kind of just wanted them out of necessity because the rules dictated that we had to have local counsel and they weren't going to be doing any of the substantive work, right? So, like, they weren't going to be drafting the motions. They weren't going to be cross-examining the witnesses. And they didn't necessarily want to. And, like, we didn't want to have to, because we knew at that point it was going to be Allison, myself, and my father trying the case. And we didn't necessarily want to have to split our fees with somebody who wasn't going to really be doing anything. So mm-hmm. that became our challenge in terms of finding local counsel, like saying, okay, well, look, we basically just need you to sit there. You know, and our hope was to be able to go into the judge and say, look, Your Honor, we're trying the case. We're going to be handling all of the ins and outs. We're going to have, you know, all the substantive work, all the motion drafting we're going to prepare. We're going to do all the arguments at trial. You know, so we don't really need local counsel to be sitting here with us every day because the the challenge for trying to find somebody down there is they don't want to destroy their practice, you know, by, by having to sit in on this trial where they're not really an active participant. Mm-hmm. Meaning that they're leaving their practice just sitting there unmanned right. for months, you know, which is like what happened with our practice. You know, it's like you can only handle one case like that at a time. And like, you know, my father told me going in, he's like, I... It, anticipate that this is going to completely fuck up your practice. That's because you just don't have time to handle other cases. Mm-hmm. You have a case like this. It's like, right. 
and it, we had two young attorneys that were working for us that tried to do the best they could, but it was hard. You know, I mean, it, it's because like, you're focusing completely on this case and especially as you draw closer towards trial and we're talking about so much paper and so much evidence that you're trying to rebut. I mean, we're talking about a case that basically spanned 13 years. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It wasn't just like it was a single incident. So we had so much to do. It was such a, a heavy, heavy caseload in terms of just being that one case that you basically are abandoning the rest of your clients and the mm -hmm. rest of your practice. So it was hard to find somebody down there that would do it. And we found a couple of lawyers, this Dan Stockman, and I can't remember what his then partner's name was, um, you know, to come on as local counsel. And then we asked the judge, I said, look, you know, he doesn't need to sit here with us at every court appearance, you know, and, th and that judge like agreed with us and said, okay, you know, I'm not going to force him to be there. And, you know, I mean, it, it depends on like, if you want to kind of start getting into the trial shit, because. Yeah. If, where are we now? I mean, both I mean, murders. Yeah, so yeah, so both, both murders, Garcia's think, in custody. And, you know, this was the craziest no, trial in the history of trials. I want to, I want to talk about how he was in custody. What? For three years in yeah. solitary. Yeah. That needs to be addressed. Oh, you we'll, get, we'll get to that. We'll talk about that during yeah. the trial stuff. Yeah, okay. That was like, so, so we get retained by the family. The family was able to come up with some money to get us retained. And obviously, you know, we realized that we were going to have to travel for the case. It's not like it was in our home jurisdiction. It was, you know, we're going to have to go to Omaha, which from our exact location in Illinois, was like a six hour drive, you know, and like mm -hmm. a short flight, you know, but still you're going to accrue expenses right you know, having to fly back and forth like pretty pretty consistently um and it's a long enough drive to where it's irritating you know it's like six hours is yeah not no. really long enough to be a long drive but it's certainly not short enough to be a short drive you know mm -hmm. it's like six hours is you know pain in the ass yeah because you're doing it both ways so Ugh. you know we we took all that into consideration um and you know so we start kind of handling this case and you know the first thing that happens when we get the case and we go in and remember i had told you we waived extradition down in illinois and allowed him to get transported up to omaha or over to omaha um which they did and they took him in and then he's in douglas county jail and so at that point um you know we have our first press conference and like this is when they started to hate us <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and when I say hate us, they hated us. I mean, Who's they, they? They. I'm talking about everyone in the city of Omaha. They thought you were these big city slicker right. lawyers coming in. Yeah, 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 for sure. And and you know, it's like, uh, you know, in my first press conference, I, you know, I had said something that to the effect that we were coming in with a scorched earth policy. You know, that it was a, a death penalty case, so you know they could expect that we were going to try it very diligently you know mm -hmm. this wasn't going to be one of those situations like his you know in a case like that in omaha they're typically hoping that some kind of you know local council is going to pick it up right yeah just you know they're just going to be able to kind of kick the can down the road and get the conviction and call it a day they didn't anticipate that it was going to be the war that it turned out to be mm -hmm. you know and um so you know i i, I go in there and <laughs> You know, I make the scorched earth statement and, you know. What's the scorched earth statement? Basically, where I say that I'm going to burn it all down, you know, mm. and trying the case that I'm not, I'm not there to make friends. I'm not there to, you know, exchange niceties that I'm, you know, I'm there to, to you know. Win. <laughs> win and, and make the state meet their burden. It's, right. It's the, it's the most, you know, it's the most, uh, I, I mean, there's, there's nothing that is more 
devastating than handling a death penalty case mm-hmm. because the end result of that is if you lose more likely than not, your clients can be executed. So from an wow. attorney's perspective, it's there's just nothing yeah. that weighs more heavily on you than that, you know. So I made it clear, you know, right from the get that this was going to be a war, you know. And so, you know, we ultimately start talking to our client, start trying to get some info. And he is at all times basically denying any kind of, uh, like, like completely denying that he had any kind of involvement with either of the murders. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I never asked him whether he did or he didn't, but he was offering up, you know, he's like, I'm innocent of this. I didn't do this. You know, I just like, I had no, like I had no reason to kill them. And, you know, so we're kind of like, all right, um, we're going to go with that, you know? So like the difference between, say for instance, like a Gacy case or like the Garcia case is that we knew we had a client that was not going to admit that he was involved in these murders. Mm-hmm. So for us, that immediately taught, like the the thought of insanity defense was off the table, you know, because like I've, I've told you, you know, when you are claiming the insanity defense, you're by operation of law admitting to committing the crimes, you know, and you're just, you're saying, well, yeah, I did it, but this is a mental defect. I could not comport my behavior to the law. Mm-hmm. So like this guy wasn't that guy. He was like, I didn't do it. So that was not an option for us. And um, so, you know, we, we knew we were going to have to defend this as actual innocence, that we were going to have to go in and create, you know, create an alternate theory, create an alternate narrative, um, you know, that was compelling enough to where a jury would find that there was reasonable doubt, you know, it became a reasonable doubt case. And, you know, so we... We shortly figure out that this is like a huge case in, in Omaha. It was like everyone was telling us that it was, you know, the biggest case ever in Nebraska, you know, wow. the biggest criminal case ever. And that, you know, so we, we knew it was going to be a big deal in terms of the press and everything else. So, and we had handled some, some cases that were relatively hope, like high profile, but they weren't like this high profile, you know, so it was like, it was different, you know, and then. Because Allison and I had driven down, gotten him to retain us, and then I had, I had called my father, who had always said, and I'm not going to repeat the line because people always take exception to it, but like <laughs> my dad had always said this one thing to me. is like, if you get this type of case, call me. I'll try it with you. So um, I called him, you know, and I knew it was going to be a, a high-publicity, high-profile case, and my dad had the experience from Gacy and a couple other cases where I felt like I really needed him there with me. And, you know, he was gracious enough to second chair me. You know, I was, I was, you know, Alice and I were lead counsel and my dad was kind of sitting back and, you know, basically just kind of guiding us and mentoring us in terms of dealing with that type of case, in terms of handling the press and all the other things that come about from that type of situation. So we end up uh, taking my dad on and... You know, we start litigating the case. And the first thing that they end up sending us in terms of discovery is these 15 binders from a Hunter case, which is their entire investigation that went on for five years from Omaha PD. And, you know, so we start digging into that stuff because we didn't get the Brumbeck stuff right away because the case was fresh for them. You know, I mean, the, the Hunter binders, it took them a while to get it to us. Like, and in retrospect, I know why it took them a while to get it to us. Why? So I'm glad you asked, Kelly. Um so you remember I was telling you that the uh, that our criminologist uh, our criminologist had said that like that leaving the knives in the neck thing was a thing 
like an ML that he considered to right. be an ML, right? Yeah. So during, I'd say probably in the first three months of handling that case, we, I think it was right after we got the binders, we started, and I think it might have been Allison specifically, started like Googling other killings that had happened in Omaha. Just kind of see if like after our criminologist said it's an MO, you know, she said, all right, well, I'm going to look and see if by chance there was anyone else that has been killed with like kind of the same time frame mm -hmm. uh, that the hunters were, that the hunter murders took place. And, that, you know, if by chance the knives were left with the body. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So unbelievably, she discovers this case that had taken place about six months prior. And the woman's name was Joy Blanchard. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that Joy Blanchard was also stabbed to death. And it also turns out that the killer had left uh, the knife in Joy Blanchard's neck. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> so we're like, holy shit. So like, wow. Um, okay. What, what are we going to do with this? Mm -hmm. So what we start doing is we're thinking, all right, there is absolutely zero percent and, and mind you in these 15 binders that we received there is not one mention of the joy blanchard case which is incredible no detective <laughs> ever that was never on anyone's radar nobody looked up well that seems like grossly overlooked <laughs> yeah or what actually happened is they went back and they recreated every document that they had given us in discovery and they had removed any indication that they had ever looked at the Hunter case and the Brumbach case as being related, which they did. They had it complete. Like we found this one, like the one document had slipped through that they forgot to, to get rid of. Is you that, know. can they do that? I mean, they did it. They didn't, I mean, can they? No, <laughs> they shouldn't have. Um, you know, I mean, it's, potentially exculpatory evidence we obviously fought like hell about that so you know because after allison discovers this this um this other the joy blanchard killing what we do immediately is we go in and we demand to the judge that we want the act and and by the way joy blanchard's case was also a cold case as of 2013 mm. okay so mm -hmm. they had never found the killer on Blanchard. Okay. so yeah. we've got Got Blanchard six months prior, or maybe eight months prior to Hunter. That is crazy. Same kind of mo. Okay, you Hunter. might be making me change my I'm mind a little you, bit. It, it, like <laughs> it's, it, it gets more. Compelling. There's even more. Oh man, it's unbelievable. Okay, so um, like I, I was telling you, like my my dad tried Gacy in this case, and he's like Bob in comparison. Gacy doesn't even touch this case in terms of like what happened with the, the motion work and the wow. like every he's like everything about this case is insane. <laughs> like, like they were they were dead set on getting Anthony Garcia. There was nothing that was going to stop that from happening. Mm -hmm. um, so we end up going in to the judge and, and Allison prepared a motion basically saying that we are demanding that we get copy of the open investigation file of joy blanchard because they're very similar you know we had to show that there were comparisons that there were very very close comparisons between the two cases because we couldn't just flip open the binder and say oh we'll see look they were clearly investigating this together as a, what they considered to be a, a, a case that was connected to this one because they had taken it all out mm -hmm. they literally had to go through all the police reports and, and it's not like they redacted it 
You know what I mean? Like when uh-huh. they blacked it out, it's like right. they, they removed, they like literally had to retype the shit Wow! in order to create these binders to give to us so that it did not appear that Joy Blanchard was in any way connected or made any mention of her. So the only document that we ended up finding, like before we had the judge basically order them to turn over the Blanchard file, the police to turn over the Blanchard file to us, was we had found this FBI uh, memo where they like they had sent Omaha PD had sent something to the FBI saying we think that these two cases might be connected mm-hmm. can you give us an assist on this so we we had the proof right there that yeah. Omaha until Garcia existed very much so thought that these two cases were connected which they should mm-hmm. so um judge finally i think it was one of two motions that we won like out of all the motions we filed in Omaha like he he said you know i agree i'm going to give you the it's still an active investigation, but I want to allow you to get it, but it's under seal. I mean, you can't talk about it with anyone. And, you know, that's that. So we ended up getting turned over this Joy Blanchard file. So we put our, our private investigator, Steve Yonke, on it. Mm-hmm. He's former law enforcement. Yep. Great PI. Um, and he starts sniffing it out. Like he was with us in, in Omaha, you know, so he starts investigating, you know, the, the suspects that they had liked for that. And... We start drawing a bunch of correlations. There's a bunch of like connections that we can draw. And it wasn't with the Hunter kid. It was with Shirley Sherman. Like there was this connection between two of the people involved that they liked in the, the Joy Blanchard murder that, that had a, a, like a, a connection with Shirley Sherman and not her directly, but her daughter. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. Who yeah. was, I, I think, having meth problems. Mm-hmm. And you know, I remember she, this yeah, now. Surely was aware of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's like as much as like anything that that you know has been written about it. No one's giving us the credit for unearthing all this shit. Like we brought all this out, um, you know. But it, it's like we could literally do fifty episodes on this thing because it's like <laughs> it's just like a never-ending rabbit hole. <laughs> so at any rate, we make this connection between these two cases where you've got two victims or actually three victims all with the knives left in their in their necks. Mm-hmm. And um, that seems. Which, yeah. yeah and, and what, but the most disturbing thing is that they decided to remove all of it so that we couldn't have it to look on. Right. You know, so that it was always going to be narrow focused. Like Garcia is the only guy it could have been. Mm-hmm. So. It was completely disingenuous on their part, you know. Um, so, because he just, he was checking their boxes. He was there. He was fucking weird, you know. It's like, you know, like that's basically it. He was there and he was fucking weird. I mean, you know? and this, I've seen this repeated so many times in so many cases. They just kind of decide who they want to pin it on. And, you know, it just happens over and over again. I feel like they choose their narrative and go with it. Tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and and the problem with the tunnel vision is that they quit investigating anybody else. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like in those circumstances where they have the wrong guy. They've now ceased investigating anyone else. Right. You know what I mean? And they have this tunnel vision that no matter what, and, and I've run in, into that situation so many times in my career, and it's so frustrating. You know, it's like you're, you're just searching for that state's attorney that has some vision, mm-hmm. you know, that has some peripheral vision that's not just, oh, this is this is our guy, this mm-hmm. is our guy, this is our guy, you know, and it's it's so frustrating, you know, and especially when they think they have a strong case, like mm-hmm. they're not 
they're not, you're not going to sway them. Like you just never get that circumstance where state throws up their hands and said, yeah, you're right. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to dismiss the charges against your guy. You know, good job. Yeah. It doesn't happen like that. Go to trial. Mm -hmm. You know, you're fighting for your guy's life. So, so we're left there. And then that's like in the first, you know, four months of this thing. And, and it's already like heated, like the state and, you know, and obviously in a case of this magnitude, the county attorney, like the head guy, the elected county attorney's handling the case. And he's got um, his, his second chair, who's this woman named Brenda Beadle. And, you know, they hate us. They hate us. They despise Allison because she's papering them to death with motions, you know. And, uh, you know, it, it becomes there's a lot of animosity between the two sides. Like there was no like kind of playing nice together thing ever, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I, I may have set that up with my scorched earth comment early on but i don't give a shit you know what i mean it's like this guy's life's at stake if you're gonna kill him you're gonna prove your goddamn case like beyond a reasonable doubt for real Mm -hmm. you know which ultimately when we get to it i don't know if that that happened right um which still weighs really heavy on me but um so we're at this juncture where we've discovered the blanchard thing um we've we've got the court to order that we're going to get that file they give it to us we're now investigating an entirely separate crime, you know, because we're trying to draw the correlations between that crime and, and the Hunter crime. Right. You know, so it's like now we've got a third crime. On wow. Talk about a rabbit hole. It was yeah. such a rabbit <laughs> hole, you know, and then obviously we realize immediately that there's a few things that have to happen. And when you're handling a case like this where you've got a five-year gap in between the killings, the first thing that we're saying after we're saying that we need to uh, change venue mm-hmm. that he's not going to be able to get a fair trial in all right. law in Douglas County mm-hmm. because he's been tried in the press. So we obviously file those motions. You know, we hire a polling company and like you do that sometimes like in a high profile case where it's getting a lot of news coverage. You know, if you're trying to file a motion to change venue saying that there's no way that you'll be able to find 12 jurors that are not going to be biased. So you hire a polling company, you develop some questions and you call a sample of the population with these five, five or six questions saying, you know, are, are you familiar with the case? Um, have you reached a conclusion as to whether he's innocent or guilty? You know, so you, you craft these questions real carefully and then you get a sample, you know, mm-hmm. through these things. And like, it, so we did that. We hired a company to do the, the um, you know, all the surveying and we get back these, you know, 90 94% of the people thought he was guilty. Wow. Yeah. You know, like it was like, it was overwhelming. There's yeah. no way that this thing shouldn't have been moved out of the county. And, but it wasn't? It was not. And, and this, the, the initial uh, judge we had was this judge named uh, Dwayne Doherty. And, you know, um, I respected him because he's a judge, obviously. I, I, I think that this particular case was, um, like nothing he'd ever handled in terms of the magnitude of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, kind of when we did a little bit of our research into who he was, what his background was prior to getting out on the bench, kind of what he did when he was a lawyer, and then kind of looking at his track record as the judge, he had never handled anything that was even close to this type of case. And, you know, and it was it was a, a, an embattled case, like meaning that the, the state and the defense were really fighting. Mm-hmm. Like, so much so that I think he was having a hard time reining us in. Yeah, he was like, in over his head a little it, bit. It, it, yeah, and Maybe. it was it was it was was that, and it was like he just couldn't get us to shut the fuck up. 
like <laughs> arguing with each other. Like we would be in court and we'd just be at war with each other, you know, and wow. like he was having a hard time, like short of throwing us all in jail for contempt, mm -hmm. you know, like keeping us under reign. So he didn't quite have the management. No, and, you that. know, which in his defense, it, it was probably super challenging. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, um, between Allison and I were, were sons of bitches, you know, and they were <laughs> fighting like that. So it was like it had to have been tough. And we're outsiders on top of it. Right. You know? and kind of not really welcome in the yeah, community. Yeah, we were definitely not welcome. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it was, and I, I actually liked it quite a bit out there, you know, in the street. <laughs> like, I, I thought Omaha was a very nice town. Yeah. Um, you know, I enjoyed a lot of the restaurants and mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the bars. And I, you know, socially, I thought it was a great town. So what was it like um, when court would adjourn for the day and you would go somewhere did you get noticed did you were there did you have media people following you or anything like no, that in yeah, this case? so like the media fortunately would handle all that like outside the courtroom so yeah it was always you know 30 cameras and reporters jamming their their mics in your face and yeah you know and we have to be careful in terms of what we're saying you know that was challenging and, and like kind of when we get into the narrative of the case a bit more in terms of what we're talking about, what measures the state was going to take to, to win this case, it gets it gets crazy. So, you know, we filed a motion to change venue with supporting evidence of the poll. Doherty denies it. Mm -hmm. So then the next thing that we're going to file is a motion to sever, you know, and that's... that's motion to sever, what's yeah. that? So a motion to sever is where we say that we do not want the Hunter and Brumbeck cases tried together oh okay right yeah. which yeah. you know in that case was a very valid argument you mm -hmm. know they're obviously wanting them tried together because it's a great advantage to them you know it's mm -hmm. like if they think they can prove one of the cases by way of them just having the other one be a part of the same trial they're they're probably going to get guilties on all four counts you know what i mean so for us that obviously wasn't the case. There was a five-year gap where, you know, there was a gun used in one. They were they were different MOs. It wasn't all the same MO. Knife wasn't left in Mary Brumbeck's neck. Right. It was just different. It mm -hmm. was a different thing. You know, that's where we had put our criminologist on who was, it was such a strange testimony. Like, he, he was obviously retained by the defense, but, like, he sat up on the stand. And the guy was, his CV was amazing. Like, his curriculum, his resume. You know, and like going in, I was thinking this guy was just going to go up there and kill it. Mm -hmm. He's going to be like, he was going to overmatch Brenda Beetle, who was going to be doing the cross-examination. And like the whole time he was on the stand, he just kept staring out the window <laughs> of the courthouse. He never once made eye contact with Brenda Beetle. And like, and she was attacking him. Like she was going hard after this guy, you know. And because like typically what happens when you have an expert on there, they, you know, they'll conduct a voir dire of that expert. You know, and they can basically ask them kind of anything that you normally wouldn't be able to ask like a normal lay witness, mm -hmm. like who's just a person up there who's not coming up there saying I'm an expert in some particular um, field. And, you know, the, it was such a bizarre, it was like a bizarro world cross-examination, like to the extent, like after it, we were like, I don't know if we can use him to trial. Like the, he the jury will hate him. wasn't personable. He wasn't enough. personable, but it was like that this thing that he did where he just, now I'm talking for like an hour. He would just stare out the he window. Just, he would stare out the window, like in the opposite direction of where Brenda Beetle was. That is like a He little. never looked at the person asking him questions, ever. Not when he was at answering a question, not when she was asking a question, never. 
Never made eye contact with him. Did you talk to him about his courtroom well, presence? A- yeah, after, after after the fact. Yeah. I mean, the guy was a professional witness. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to have to go in and say, yeah, you should probably make eye contact with the person asking you questions because yeah. it makes you more credible. Right. So, you know, um, and we ended up ultimately not using Brent at trial. Oh. Um, you know, it, it heavily based on that. Uh-huh. So, but, you know, he did get out a lot of the information. And, you know, when we were trying to change or, or having the, the cases severed, you know, showing the differences in the two cases as to why because typically when you have a case where you've got either multiple defendants or multiple acts like the acts are usually very close in proximity Mm -hmm. you know like if you've got like a like a serial burglar Mm -hmm. you know and he's burglarized six different houses like in a eight week period and a lot of times they'll try that case together because it's basically they're alleging it's the same guy and it's kind of the same mo and he's doing the same thing you know but this was different. You know, it was like there was a huge gap in time. There was a lot of facts that were completely different from one another. And it was like a theory of theirs. Mm-hmm. Like they, you know, they had this, the only connection they really had was Creighton. And it wasn't directly Creighton. Because mm-hmm. It was a young boy whose father happened to work at Creighton. Right. You know, but, but like trying to overcome in the eyes of, and that's why I was telling you the importance of trying to always remember this was a college town. It's mm-hmm. a Creighton town. You know, Omaha at its core is a fucking Creighton town. You mm-hmm. know, so they called it the Creighton Killings. Like that was the nickname oh, for the yeah. case. So that was an incredibly high hurdle for us to try to get over in terms of convincing Judge Doherty that these cases need to be severed, which they should have been. There's mm-hmm. no way they should have ever been tried together. You know, and, I, and look, from like a, a fiduciary side of it, like, we didn't want to have to try this case twice. Mm-hmm. You know, like, they, the family just didn't have the money to try this case twice because it was going to end up being a really long trial both times. You know what I mean? So it was like we were doing this for our client because it was the right thing to do. It's what justice required. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it certainly wasn't going to benefit us at all. Right. You know, I mean, so, of course, that was denied, you know. Um, so we're just, we're we're continuing to plod through and... As we're going along, you know, our client starts telling us that he starts making these claims that he's being tortured in in the jail. Okay. How so? What was going on there? So the way that they had it situated in that in the Douglas County Jail is that, um, you know, they have walkways in between the cells. Mm -hmm. All right. And meaning where the cops or the officers, the, the deputy sheriffs can walk through in between the cells, kind of in between the walls, mm-hmm. you know, and they just weren't letting him sleep. Like he was, oh. he was public enemy number one, but it, it gets way worse than that. It's like they weren't letting him sleep. And, th- and this is him, remember, and I, and I don't know if I brought this up, but or you may have brought it up. He was in solitary from the get, from the minute he was in there. Mm-hmm. Right, twenty three hours. Why ago. was that? What what made them decide to put him in solitary? So that's a great question, and the answer was because we filed a motion to get him out. Well, like you know, after like a month, we're like, why do you have our guy in solitary? Because at first they were saying it was for safety, for his own safety, for his own safety, because they felt that he was a suicide risk. Like, oh, okay, not because he no. was accused of killing a child no. and all of that. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, because I mean, I, I think that the way that that particular jail was situated, I, I think that guys had their own individual cells. Okay. Like, so they weren't bunking up necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there might there might have been a little of that, like like some of that concern with the gen pop, 
like what? Like when you kill a child or are accused of killing a child, they have that prison yeah. justice well, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, it's even worse if like you're like a pederast, you mm-hmm. know, like if you're accused of sexually abusing a child. Right. Those are the guys that are, you know, that they really try to protect. So so there, it, it started as that angle that, that he was a suicide risk and he was like a certain level and that when he got to a different level, they would move him out of that. And we fought that and fought that and fought that for months and months. And we're like, this is obscene. Mm-hmm. So that at some point... You know, we thought that we had finally gotten him out. So it got so bad that at some point he starts talking about this thing where he's getting tortured. And it was like he was he was saying that, um, you know, they were using some kind of like sonic waves to like anally rape him with like some. They like the the people who worked there in the prison were doing this to him. Yeah, his jailers, you know, and that and then he was adamant about it. Like he kept writing what they call or kites, which are. Kind of like when prisoners have beefs with what's going on in the jail, they write a kite, and it's it's basically you know it's a record of of what they're claiming abuses are going on in the jail. So these were he was repeatedly and like it became to the, the it became like kind of a thing where every conversation we had wasn't about the case; it was always about how they were torturing him in there. And well, okay, what do you believe this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, we had no, re- I mean, did I believe that there were, they were using some kind of like hypersonic weapon that could like anally intrude him? Not necessarily, but you know, what I think that they were doing is he was sleep deprived. Yeah. He was, he was um, being kept in solitary 23 hours a day. He was losing his mind. Totally losing his mind. Completely. And do they, I thought I read that like in solitary, they keep the lights on bright. 24 hours a day, like never turn the lights off. I mean, I I wouldn't put it past him. I don't know. Miserable. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was bad. It was, you know, like I could, like we could see his decline. So that goes on for six, eight months. And then we finally have reached the conclusion that our, he's no longer competent to stand trial. Oh, okay. So it's like when you were saying, oh, they sent him to the doctors, you know, people are always like, oh, they said it wasn't a they. It was his own defense team felt that he wasn't able to go to trial, that he wasn't able to assist in his own defense at that point because he was he was mentally unwell. So when you decide that you file another motion, what right. do you do? Right. And, and and it was two pronged for us. The reality of is I wanted to get him the fuck out of that jail. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted it because what happens is they take him out and they put him in a in a mental institution. And what they do is if he's deemed incompetent by the trial judge. They then take him, he's placed in the facility, and he's there until they deem that he is now competent. Mm-hmm. They basically try to heal him back to competency. Okay. Which seems like such a load of shit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so the judge agrees with us. And so the first time that we challenged our client's competency, you know, he ends up getting transferred and he goes out to the hospital and, you know, he was out there for a few months and he did, he got noticeably better. Like he was, well, he was living like a, you know, I mean. Do they do go through like a process of therapy, counseling, medication? How do they do that? All of that. Yeah. Yeah. All of that takes, like he's, he's getting treated for mental illness. Mm-hmm. You know? So yeah, all of that. So they're, they're trying to evaluate him at the same time did as he- they are. Was there an actual diagnosis or what? I mean, not in that sense. I mean, because like we weren't, he wasn't there for that. 
Okay. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. they weren't like, they certainly had formed opinions. Mm-hmm. But remember, this is an arm of the state as well, like this mm-hmm. mental facility he's at. Like, so they, I'm sure, had directives from the county attorney of the biggest county in, in Nebraska saying, this is the guy. We need this guy going to trial. And at that point, remember, we are not interested in them coming back with the diagnosis that he's insane or, you know, has some kind of sociopathic tendencies or, you know, any kind of diagnosable type disease, because really for us, the insanity defense was not an option. You know what I mean? So that really wouldn't have helped us all that much. What we wanted to do was try to get him better mentally um, so that he could help us, you know, because that, that was the thing about Anthony is that that one of the reasons I don't worry about doing this case is a deep dive on the podcast is because he really never told us shit. You know what I mean? It's he like just, there's, there's not much privilege that I could break in terms of him giving us privileged information because even f- from the inception, he just never. He just never really talked to he, you about anything. He never, he never really did. So you never formed like a close bond as a lot of no, clients. He, and, yeah. he wouldn't. Uh, no. And in his mental state, like deteriorated quickly, mm-hmm. you know, within months, you know, of of the, the solitary and everything else that was going on, which of course they would never admit. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm sitting there talking with the warden all the time. You know, I'm going directly to the top. I'm not trying to deal with, you know, and I'm like, what the hell's going on in there, man? Like after the competency and he gets sent out, they then bring him back and then they put him in solitary again. And this time, their rationale is not they're concerned with his welfare, either from other prisoners or from him harming himself, but is that he had once worked as a doctor in the Indiana state prison facilities. So oh, because gotcha. of that, mm-hmm. he had uh, an intricate knowledge of the inner workings of the jail mm-hmm. and the prison. So they considered him to be an escapee risk, gotcha. which was absurd, you know. You know, but that was their that was their thing, and they were sticking to it, and, and we were like handcuffed to to beat it. You know, like there was nothing that we could do because we filed the motions, we argued it, we argued it was cruel and unusual. You know, his constitutional rights were being violated, his civil rights were being violated. We argued all that, like we just didn't like sit idly by and let this happen to him. Like we fought it, like we fought every aspect of the case, and just it would fell on deaf ears. You know, I was like, nah, you know, we hear you, but we're gonna keep him where he's at. And this is where we're going to stop today. Stay tuned for part five, our final episode in our five-part series. And I'm going to be releasing both parts four and five at the same time. So stay tuned for those, and I will talk to you soon. Until next time, lock your doors, people. Bye-bye. True Crime IRL is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink. We are part of That's Not Canon Network and TNC Productions in Brisbane, Australia. For more information, go to truecrimeirl.com. True Crime IRL theme music is produced by the captain at True Crime Garage. Thank you.